0: Former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first of a kind podcast, we sit down with active duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives let's go inside the bureau with frank figluzi
1: There is something called the vault. To discover what happened in a crime that was committed a century ago. Would I find something on Bigfoot? John Dillinger. Identified flying objects? Pretty Boyd Floyd. Floyd the Red Scare. Rosenberg Rosenbergs or Alger Hiss. Martin Luther King. Information that would harm our nation's security by releasing it. I want the FBI's file on me. A major counterintelligence double agent operation. Learning from the past
0: by getting folks like you in front of classes at the FBI Academy. Uh, ironically, there were never
1: black magic markers.
0: So much of our culture as a nation is embodied in our shared understanding of our past. That includes the stories, the timelines, the people, the traditions that all make us who we are. Well, the same is very true for institutions. And institutions like the FBI often have people who help ensure that that shared understanding gets perpetuated through the years as part of the history of the organization. Today, we're thrilled to have the FBI's historian with us. Dr. John Fox is joining us for this episode. Dr. Fox, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Frank.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. And, um, Boy, you know, FBI personnel are famous for their their own personal stories. You've got all the stories of the FBI as part of your job description. So we're going to get into some of those as we talk. But first, I want to ask you about your own history, uh, your own journey into the FBI. Tell us um, where you came from and how you came to be the FBI's historian.
1: Well, I look at it as a a kind of the right place, right time sort of thing because I was in grad school working on a doctorate in American history and wasn't too fascinated by the uh, dissertation I was thinking about. And one of my professors said, you know, I have a bunch of old FBI files. Maybe you'd like to take a look at them. And I got hooked. It was an old spy case right around the time that the uh, Venona transcripts were being declassified. And released, and, and Cold War history was changing. And so I got really interested in the Bureau and spies and counterintelligence. And after um, researching for a bit and beginning to write, I needed a real job, and the Bureau was hiring for Freedom of Information Act processors. So I kind of got my foot in the door at the end of um, Attorney General Reno's push to improve the uh, FBI's backlog with regards to FOIA requests.
0: And, and so you come on board as a processor of Freedom of Information Act requests. How does them, how, how do we make that move to becoming the historian for the Bureau?
1: Well, I, I was still writing my dissertation, but was kind of hoping that I could convince the Bureau after I'd gotten my feet wet that they needed a historian again. Uh, we hadn't had one since the early 90s when my predecessor had left the Bureau. And so when a uh, note went out, three months into starting in the FBI that they were going to hire a historian. Again, I jumped on and introduced myself and they said, great, but you don't have the doctorate. But if you'd like to do history, come on over and you can work with the historian when we hire someone. And at the time they didn't find anybody and waited until I finished and then reopened the position. And I applied again and that time I got it. So I've been officially telling the Bureau's history since 2003.
0: Wow, a story of uh, of persistence certainly, and also timing. Right place, right time helps tremendously. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure you had a good reputation; they would not have looked at you for uh, that that role and kept kept it in house. So, now tell us what an FBI historian does. What's your job description, and and then more importantly, what's your what's your average week look like?
1: Well, I, I think it kind of goes to what you were saying about, about telling our story and about getting to hear other people's stories, because in that sense, I get to to learn you know, a little bit of everything about what most of us in the Bureau do. And then I get to share that and try to put it in context, try to explain it to both ourselves and to uh, the wider public about what the FBI does, why it does it, and what some of the constraints are and how we do it. Both, um, you know, mistakes we sometimes make, but but certainly more importantly, even, you know, the, the Constitution and, and laws and regulations that guide us, the history that forms us, and so forth. So, in that regard, given how broad the FBI's mandate is, you know, my day can be anything from talking about uh, sports history to spies, to terrorists, to serial killers, and it changes from day to day depending on what people Need to know about.
0: It's pretty cool. It's it's pretty cool. You have you have the collective two beer and three beer stories, as we say when we're, when all of us are telling war stories from our. Well, our I'm not career. allowed to do
1: that during the middle of the day. We still yeah, have those no. <laughs> uh, Louis Free Blue Line policies we've yeah, got to worry about.
0: I, I I understand at least not on government property. I understand. Well, let's. Um, we're not constrained by that. At least I'm not on 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 my end of the conversation here. Let's let's talk about access to the FBI's stories, the FBI's files. So many of our listeners are probably wondering, how do I even, if we're talking to an FBI historian and he's got access to all that, how do I get access to some of that? You mentioned you began your career at the FBI with the Freedom of Information Act process that allows citizens to get access to certain FBI files. What What's the story with that? What, what is FOIA? Um, how many requests for files come in in an average year? And um, how does the process work?
1: The Freedom of Information Act process is a, a law that's been with us for for a couple of generations at this point. It was passed first back in the 60s to allow people to get access to information that the government compiles in the work it does, you know, because our fellow citizens have a right to know what we do on their behalf. And so over the years, these laws have come to uh, you know, let people look at subjects that they're really interested in. And so people write into the FBI or they, they send us an email through our FOIPA system, Freedom of Information Act and Privacy Act system, and request information files on specific subjects. And it could be a person, it could be uh, a procedure or a policy, it could be uh, just a broader topic and, or a specific event. And, and so through the, the process, which includes reviewing our records to see if we have anything responsive to it, and then going through any responsive records and removing that information that we still have to protect, things like personal privacy, uh, classified information, the identity of informants, things like that, and then ultimately releasing those documents to the public for them to do whatever they want to do with it. whether it's uh, checking up on what we're doing or whether it's scratching itch as to you know biographical information about a famous person or it's you know trying to to discover what happened in a crime that was committed a century ago.
0: So this is interesting. I, I, I you know, it, it's a, it's something almost uniquely American that we have such access to our government agencies and even perhaps once sensitive files inside the FBI. So if I hear you correctly, you, you don't have to have a personal nexus to a case, a personal connection to a case to request the file. It doesn't have. You don't have to say this is. I want the FBI's file on me. Which I'm sure happens quite a bit, but it could be something you're researching or just have a curiosity about. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, as you said, you know, the the do you have a record about me is a big question. A lot of people ask it, and the answer is usually no, right. um, unless you have a good reason for suspecting it. Um, but for a lot of people, it can be anything from you know, UFOs to, you know, John Dillinger or Pretty Boy Floyd or the Rosenbergs or Alger Hiss, you know, one of our, our kind of big cases in the past that everybody hears about in the history books.
0: So um, in prepping for our discussion today, I learned that there is something called the vault. So the FBI has something called the vault, which presumably is something that you are opening up for the public, that the public can access. How did that even come about? How did this decision to say, um, look, we get so many requests for certain areas of interest that we're going to create this this vault where people can come in and browse right now online uh, without necessarily even making a formal request? Is that an accurate understanding of what the vault is?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a good summary of it. You know, of course, it goes back to the day when we didn't even have the internet. And so when people asked for a FOIA request, they got a paper copy. And because the government didn't want to necessarily put a burden on people having to pay for the copies, agencies were required to actually have a physical reading room where people could come in and review the pre-printed copies of the Freedom of Information Act requests. As the internet exploded in the 1990s, The law got amended and said that the government should have an electronic reading room. And so the vault is actually just our latest incarnation of the electronic reading room, and it's about 12, 13 years old at this point. But we've had our records online since the the late 1990s, and what it consists of are scanned responses to Freedom of Information Act requests that are popular. The um, current law we work under says that if uh, a certain thing is requested more than three times in a a period of a couple of years, we should put it up on the vault or whatever your agency's version of the electronic reading room is.
0: So for folks who are listening right now and they're saying, "Okay, I when I get a minute, I'm going to check this thing out. I want to see what's in
1: the vault. How do they get online and find it? pretty straightforward. It's vault.fbi.gov, and it will take you right there, and you can access uh, subject lists, or you can go through the alphabetical list. We've put up uh, more than 7,000 different things over the years, so there, there's quite a variety there. Wow. what Would I find something on Bigfoot? Perhaps. You would, actually. Um, back in the 70s, we were asked uh, to do a uh, forensic examination on some uh, suspected hair, And um, our lab, for uh, the reasons that um, you can find in the file, decided, all right, we will do the testing and uh, determined that it was most likely another form of animal. It did not appear to have any relation to an unknown, (laughs) unknown beast. I'll put it that way. Right, 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 right.
0: Let's hit pause so I can talk about Raycon earbuds. I've got my own pair of Raycons, and they're great. There's a lot going on in the world, whether it's stuff you're excited about, like maybe the Cleveland Browns so far this season, or stuff you'd rather not think about, like what is or is not happening inside the D.C. Beltway. You can't always control the vibes out there, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Whether I'm working out or just going for a walk, chances are you'll see me wearing my Raycons. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work, or work out, Raycons will be your go-to for on-the-go audio. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever, with an improved rubber oil look and a feel that's really cool. They've got optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These are impressive before you even start listening. You get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass there's pure mode for podcast listening blues and instrumentals there's balanced mode for podcasts for rock for heavy rock and metal and there's bass mode for hip-hop edm and reggae there's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash frank. That's buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash frank to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash frank. It's Shudder by AMC Networks. There's a chill in the air spooky season has arrived. It's scary movie time. There's no better place for horror than Shudder, which has kicked off its annual 61 Days of Halloween, a two-month supersized celebration full of new movies and series, like a new season of Creepshow, and VHS 94, a brand new installment in the acclaimed Found Footage Anthology franchise. And that's just the start of Shudder's unbeatable Halloween lineup. There are new specials from L. Vira and Joe Bob Briggs, a new season of The Booley Brothers Dracula, their new docu-series Behind the Monsters on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern movie monsters and so much more. You can stream great thrillers, horror and suspense for $599 a month. Shudder has the largest, fastest growing, curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It's the Netflix for horror. There are new supernatural terrors, edge of your seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every week. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits stream the unexpected on all your favorite devices including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and Android devices i found shutter to be horrifying in its variety of quality Thrillers. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must see titles like Vicious Fun, The Mortuary Collection, and PG Psycho Gorman, plus all the best horror documentaries and the Hit Creep Show TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to shudder.com and use promo code frank that's shutter s-h-u-d-d-e-r dot com promo code frank now let's get back to our episode so there's been uh, i think throughout time there's been this sense that the fbi did did maintain files on everybody and that that likely probably came out of perceptions of J. Edgar Hoover, who you know at least in Washington circles was thought to you know quote have something on everybody. But tell, give us some more a, a dose of reality about about that. You you mentioned people write in asking for their own files. What are what does that look like? What's the reality there?
1: Well, the the reality is obviously we couldn't have information on everybody. Um, You know, there's just too many people over too long a period of time, even if we wanted to and even if our country's laws and regulations allowed it, which it doesn't. We collect information in the course of our investigations of allegations that there's been a threat to violate or has a violation of federal law or there's a national security threat. And so, you know, of course, what we do end up getting is not the bright side of people's lives. You know, we're looking at people who have been injured, people who have been victimized. Uh, We're looking at people who are trying to harm this country. And so we we do gather a lot of information. When you throw into that the fact that we've also been in charge of our nation's criminal identification records since the 1920s, we've gotten a lot of information about a lot of people. And so... When people apply for certain kinds of jobs, when people apply for security clearances, when people are involved in certain things, other agencies, other parts of the government, state, local, tribal, and obviously federal, come to the FBI to see if we have any records about that person in in our databases. And so people often confuse, one, the fact that we might have their name for a variety of you know, essential law enforcement purposes that were collected in in the databases out in Criminal Justice Information Services Division in West Virginia versus FBI investigative files. And so even though we have a lot of information and it does cover a lot of people, it, it doesn't come close to to everybody as the the myth goes.
0: Sure. Yeah, and we're we're happy about that as a free and open society that Big Brother Absolutely. Big Brother's not uh, spying on us uh, without any legal reason to do so. And so, what are what are some of the reasons why the FBI might say to a requesting person, "Hey, we do have a related file that you're asking about, but you can't see parts of it." What are the criteria for saying no uh, to either an entire file or portions of files?
1: Well, I, there, there are a couple different reasons. Um, the first one, and, and often the, the most prevalent one, is we just don't have that information. If we do have information, then we review it. And under the Freedom of Information Law, there are nine exemptions of information that, that the government is not allowed to release under that law. And for us, in the files that we process, the biggest one is personal privacy. Because if a person is still alive under our laws and regulations, they have a right to privacy. And so, you know, if, if you, Frank Fugluzy, wants to come in and ask about, you know, your neighbor, you know, we would say that, you know, you would have to get your neighbor's permission in a signed legal form saying that you can have that access. And, you know, obviously, depending on why you're looking for that information, chances are you're not going to be able to get that. Now, if the person's deceased, then privacy isn't the issue. There are, of course, other reasons to take information out. If it is information that would harm our nation's security by releasing it, if it's classified, we would not release it. If it would identify the identity of someone who has given us information with a confidentiality agreement, we would not release it because it could harm that person, and even when that person's deceased, the that agreement of confidentiality still has legal hold, and so so we do not normally release that material without the court saying so. Other reasons could be there are certain um, you know procedures and and things that that are sensitive and still being used, and to reveal them might compromise investigations. If um, a case is still being investigated, but there—if you actually get on the um, the FBI's vault, there are are links to ex- explanations of what these exemptions are, and you can see the whole list. I mean, there are actually a couple that we don't use at all. I think one has to do with um, normally the location of mines on federal lands. You know, it's not an exemption that's meant for the FBI. We don't get into that a whole heck of a lot. Sure, sure
0: understood and and it makes sense i think also throughout history there's been a, a lot of curiosity about very public figures and the fbi's interest in them and i i'm thinking back you know specifically to the point in our country's history where the, the red scare occurred and mccarthyism and there were accusations of of people in hollywood being communists and you know everybody thought there was this kind of undercurrent that had to be suppressed uh, of, of communism, and that may have resulted in a lot of celebrity Hollywood-type files at, at the FBI. Can we look at some of those? Are those there? And, and are there a lot of celebrity files? And if so, why?
1: Well, there, there are actually a number of celebrity files. And yes, some of them do have to do with communism or other radical uh, ideologies um, that they may have uh, supported or, or um, you know, somehow uh, been involved with it at the time, some of that is actually up on the vault. There, of course, you know, as, at the period you were talking about, the, the late 1940s, early 1950s, there was a lot of that material being produced in the FBI, and a lot of it has been released over the years. A lot of it can actually now be accessed at uh, the National Archives, um, but it's not all up on the vault. There'd just be, be too much. One of the biggest reasons, though, why we end up having celebrity files ends up being things like extortion investigations. You know, they receive a note saying that, you know, I'm going to kill you or if you don't, you know, give me lots of money, I'm going to do something bad to your dog or, you know, stuff like that. And so we end up having interactions with these people over the years that have nothing to do with anything that's negative towards them, except that they were victims and so, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of times you'll see news stories about, oh, the FBI has hundreds of pages on this celebrity or that celebrity and you look at it and it's almost all that extortion stuff. We didn't have an investigative interest in the person themselves. They didn't do anything wrong. They were simply the victim. And so it's funny how how sometimes the popular imagination thinks, oh, well, the FBI had material on them. Therefore, it must have been because they were Either engaged in something illegal or something uh, radical or or subversive, and and oftentimes it turns out not to be the case. Right, right. On the other hand, Lucille Ball was associated with communists and did come to the attention of the FBI because of it, and so there is a fair amount of you know investigative material from the 1950s in the Lucille Ball file, which I believe is on the vault. Uh,
0: It's fascinating to see uh, our own history as a nation reflected through what the FBI was or was not focused on. And, you know, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about Martin Luther King, for example, and the FBI's uh, attention on him as a potential threat. How much of the FBI's work on MLK is available to the public?
1: At this point, there, there's a fair amount that's available, especially at National Archives, because Congress passed a collections act back in the 1990s that said that all the JFK, the Kennedy assassination records, and the King-related records should be gathered together and sent to National Archives. And so they've actually made a fair amount available. But one of the, the first big FOIA requests that the FBI got was for material related to Dr. King and, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so some of the biggest releases back in the, the early 1980s, for instance, dealt with this. And, and there have been a number of good books out um, kind of looking at some of this stuff. And obviously, um, you know, Congress itself had exposed at least the bare bones of, of the investigation, of some of the, the areas where it went um, completely off the rails, uh, the damage it had, that had been done, and so forth, in the 1970s, and so there were records that came out through the congressional oversight of, especially the Church Committee of the um, House Committee, uh, a Select Committee on Assassinations, and then since then there have been subsequent uh, Freedom of Information Act requests on, oh, people associated with Dr. King, on uh, you know the SCLC on the FBI's investigations of communist subversion in in various civil rights groups. And even now, we've, of course, been putting up um, in recent years some of our files from Operation Solo, which was actually a major counterintelligence double agent operation that uh, was actually targeting gathering foreign intelligence from the communist nations that our informant was visiting. But tied into the whole King matter because it was one of the key sources for kind of putting the FBI onto a focus on Dr. King in the first place for communist subversion.
0: This is fascinating stuff. And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you, you're the historian that history is so much more than just learning the information. It's learning lessons from the information and from the way things were handled through the lens of today. So how do you ensure that new FBI employees get those lessons? What's the process by which the FBI doesn't repeat the sins of the past, the mistakes of the past? How do, how do you play a role in that?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's not just me. I, you know, my role, you know, at least for the initial introduction of employees is to, to tell them about our history. And to talk about these, and of course, you know, I'm covering a lot of history in a a generally short period of time initially, but to give them an idea of the flow, both the good and the bad, and obviously you have to talk about the bad because you certainly don't want to repeat repeat those lessons. I know in our new agent training, for instance, we've now integrated both visits to the National Holocaust Museum and to the um, Dr. King Memorial here in DC, to show in the first place, the Holocaust Museum, how the political corruption of law enforcement can lead to abuses. And in the example of Dr. King, how both that combination of you know, tunnel focus and, and personal animosities can lead to really serious abuses. And so the idea is to show people that we are given an awful lot of trust. And with that trust, we have to be aware not only of what our job is and what we're doing, but also how we can make mistakes and how we should avoid that.
0: Boy, I'm reminded of the uh, the statement over the National Archives building, the past is prologue, and it's true. And there are lessons to be learned from our past. And I'm really glad to hear that that you're a part of getting in front of uh, new employee orientation classes, new agent orientation classes and all the Bureau is doing to ensure that there's an understanding of history and, and the value added is there from learning the lessons. Hey, let's break here for me to tell you about a supplement I've been using personally for about a year. I was looking for faster recovery from tougher workouts, especially since I'm not getting any younger. What I found on my own was true Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niagen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. Since taking True Niagen, I have more resiliency, and it helps my muscles recover after workouts. Whether you're an athlete, busy parent, or busy grandparent, True Niagen can be part of a lifestyle of healthy aging. Add more vitality to your life today with True Niagen. Right now, new customers can save 10% on their first purchase by going to trueniagen.com frank and use code Frank. That's trueniogencom slash frank, code frank. To save 10% on your first purchase, niogen. that's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash frank, code frank. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we're also sponsored by... Simply Safe security systems. Imagine if every crime could be halted before it happened. Well, while you can't stop every criminal in their tracks, what if you could deter them? That's what Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so it can install anywhere, extending Simply Safe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. That's right. Simply Safe, the system that U.S. News & World Report names best home security system of 2021, just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech to help keep you and your family safe. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has a 1080-pixel HD resolution. With an 8x zoom, that means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. And it has an easy-to-remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit SimplySafe.com slash Bureau. Simply Safe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's SimplySafe, S-I-N-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com bureau. Let's pause here for a new sponsor that's joined us just in time for the holidays. If you're like me, you're always looking to give a gift that really means something. A gift to loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship you share. That's why I'll be giving the gift of StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, Storyworth will compile all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. This is a great gift to give parents or grandparents, aunts and uncles, because it will be passed down for generations of grandkids and great grandchildren. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones, no matter how near or far apart you are. You'll learn new things about your loved one that will draw you even closer. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love a most thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to Storyworth, that's one word, dot com slash frank and save $10 on your first purchase. That's Storyworth.com slash Frank to save $10 on your first purchase. Now, let's get back to our guest. So, you know, from a very practical standpoint, jumping from that kind of really big overarching Topic. Let, let's talk practicality. I'm imagining these millions of files somewhere uh, that somebody now somebody's requested something. Are they all automated? Are, is somebody blowing dust off of a box in a in, in a warehouse somewhere <laughs> in a suburb of Washington? how How does it how does it work? If you're asking for an old file, how does it get uh, ultimately to the, the person requesting it at home?
1: Well, you know it depends. Once the file has been created. And it is introduced into our records-keeping system. Nowadays, of course, that's an electronic process. But we still have control of a lot of the old paper that we had prior to not all that long ago, as you well know. So on the one hand, our physical files are in a state-of-the-art records complex now and all managed centrally. They, um, you know, of course, are all indexed within our central record system. And so the FOIA processors can go and look and see if we have records on something. Now, there are still those records that, that kind of haven't gone to National Archives or been destroyed because they, they weren't of any historic value anymore. That we have, and those become a little more difficult, but yeah, we can still, they're still indexed. We still have access to the old indices, and so we can check those records as well. And then we have also, over the last, oh, good 20 years, been sending an awful lot of material to the National Archives so that it can be made a part of their permanent collections for U.S. citizens, uh, persons to, uh, and, um, you know, other researchers to make use of. And so sometimes we, now we have to tell people, well, actually, we don't have that record anymore. We sent it to National Archives. Or sometimes we'll tell them, well, we do have that record and we've determined that it looks like they're, you know, um, 50 or 60 pages and we'll get it to you you know as soon as we get it processed or maybe we might have to tell them well there seems to be a lot of material here it's going to take us a while to go through it we'll start sending you batches of it as we process it it's so it creates a tiered system mm. depending on on how much responsive material there is and then some, someone, some human
0: being presumably has to sit down and look at the file that's being requested and say, well, wait a minute, this is still classified or this gives up a, an informant's name or there's a privacy concern. That's when I think the infamous black magic marker comes mm-hmm. out. and We've often seen, we've often seen even uh, journalists on TV saying, we've received the file requested mm-hmm. and there's all black marks all over it. What, who
1: who, who yeah. does that and, and how, how does that work? Ironically, there were never black magic markers. Uh, (laughs) We actually used to use either red or brown. And then we would slap the document after we lined out whatever was being redacted. We put it onto a Xerox machine that had a filter that filtered out red or brown. And so the copy came out black.
0: Interesting. Well, we got a little bit of of history right there.
1: (laughs) Well, a little practical history. And I remember that, you know, you would kind of get a little heady there for... um, you know, if you spent too much time lining out stuff because of the smell of the markers, but it's true, it's true. You didn't start hallucinating. It wasn't that bad. Nowadays, of course, we do it digitally. You know, our our processors have a scanned image of the file up in front of them, and they have uh, tools that allow them to graphically black out what they need to do, put in what the exemptions are that that are being used, and then the the computer creates a um, an image of that page with the redactions. And then those images are compiled into a PDF and provided to the requester. Got it. How- Unless they want paper copy. <laughs> mm. But you, you get charged per page uh, after yeah. a certain amount. So yeah, that would tend to have a,
0: a chilling effect on uh, on paper requests, I would think. It can. How about prioritizing requests and how long the process might average for folks? And you know, if a if a journalist comes in and says, "I I've got a case I'm working on right now, a story of national importance. Can you put this my request on the top of the pile?" Does that work that way?
1: Normally, requests are handled first in first out, and then they are tracked into three categories based on size, of how much material has to be processed. You know, so you have small requests, medium requests, large requests. And each request pile is handled in order. As far as it goes with that kind of hot story, um, current topic sort of thing, there is some leeway under the Freedom of Information Act law to work with those sorts of things, given the the immediate public interest in it. But they're pretty rare. Yeah. You know, normally it's you know we want to take care of the people who who got their requests in. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't meant to. To create tiers of people, uh, it's simply meant to get as much information out to, to the public as possible in as short a time as possible. Got and it. tragically, it's a very labor intensive process because, as you said, someone's got to read through each page and mm. decide what the law says we have to take out.
0: So, so the time it takes to respond to a request could could vary widely based on the size of the file. Right. It it could be weeks to years. Yes. Weeks to years. Wow. And and so in terms of size of the files, what might be some of the largest files uh, in the FBI's databases? I'm I'm this is going to be a guess, but I would
1: wonder that 9-11 was a massive investigation. Would that be one of them? I would suspect I'm not even sure we could completely estimate how many uh, documents we have regarding nine eleven, we could give you a guesstimate, but it would be astronomical. You know, it it really depends on on the matter. Um, you know, just looking back at some of our old cases, we have cases that ran over you know many many years and and created hundreds of thousands of pages of documentation. Mm. You know, if you look at the the Dillinger investigation, our investigation of John Dillinger ran from mid to late 1933. And Dillinger was dead by July of 1934. And of course, we were still going after his colleagues after that. But the bulk of the file is from, you know, about 33 to 35. And that in itself is hundreds of thousands of pages. It varies greatly depending on what's going on.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, That that gives you a feel of just a a few years of chasing a bad guy uh, resulted in so many files there. I can only imagine what 9-11 looks like. And in the future, you know, um, all kinds of domestic terrorism investigations, the January six inquiry is still going. Um, you, there is a future in, uh, in the work that you do, my friend.
1: Well, I I'm a 20th century historian, so hopefully I just have to worry about the older paper records uh, eventually. But no, <laughs> that's not true, obviously. But yeah. yes, uh, the 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 problem of electronic records is not unique to the FBI. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's across the board. It just goes with the the nature of how we do business these days, as um, you know, across the world. Yeah,
0: you know, you got my interest, and in maybe other people's interest earlier in our conversation when you mentioned uh, requests for. For files on UFOs. Is that is that really a thing? Do people really write in and and say, I I want everything you've got on unidentified flying objects?
1: We've had that. Uh, Now, you know, the, the material that we had on our early UFO investigations has been up on the vault or, you know, in the reading room since, you know, we've had a reading room. And it largely consists of people writing in to the FBI back in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when the Air Force was asking us to kind of keep an eye out for these things. And then eventually the Air Force created their own Project Blue Book and said to the other agencies, you don't need to to field these anymore, Um, you know, just pass them to us. So, you know, they, they kind of tapered off for us. But there was a time in the early Cold War when we were getting a lot of these Reports. And and usually it was um you know, it turned out to be, you know, the weather balloon or or something else. Um, I don't remember anything terribly interesting in our own files that uh, jumped out as truly unexplained at the time.
0: Well, this has been fascinating um, on a number of levels. I think first, the, the acknowledgement, and for many, for the first time, many of our listeners for the first time hearing that the FBI has a historian, cares enough about the value of its history, the lessons embodied in, in its own files, to actually have a professional like you on board. I'm, I'm glad they do. And then just this, this real sense of culture, learning from the past, not repeating any abuses or excesses of the past by getting folks like you in front of classes at the FBI Academy in orientation processes for new employees. I think it's so important. And I, and I think as we go through what we go through periodically as a nation, and we're perhaps in one of those periods of time right now where sometimes we think we forgot our history and what we stand for and where we've been, And that can help us decide where we're going. And I'm glad the FBI has somebody like you on board to anchor it, keep it rich in its own history, and keep it on track. So for that, uh, Dr. John Fox, I thank you for joining us today and for what you do for the FBI.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity here.
0: Yeah, of course. We've been talking to Dr. John Fox, the FBI's historian, for many years now about the lessons all of us can learn from our own past and what the FBI can learn from its history. Thanks for listening to our discussion with the FBI's historian who plays a vital role in preserving the values and culture of the Bureau. Please join us next time for our season finale as we ask this question. As FBI employees stand watch over our well-being and wrestle with unspeakable crimes and horrors, who's looking out for their well-being? We'll take you into the FBI's Employee Assistance Program on our next episode.
1: The Bureau is written by Frank Faglusi, and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Ridberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent, creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.